Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at the images, the metaphors for what happens on the cross in the Bible. And uh, we're here today to talk a little bit about courtroom or legal imagery. People have always disagreed with each other, sometimes bitterly. It's called marriage, right? <laughs> Ever since the beginning of time, I'm sorry, honey. In the earliest societies we know, we can find battles depicted on cave walls and on pottery. Uh, in the Bible, Adam and Eve blame each other for the fall. In the next generation, Cain kills Abel. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. From there, people have always disagreed and always had a tendency to harm one another. And so because of this, two things have developed in society sort of simultaneously. One is the need for laws and standards of behaviors on which to judge each other. And the other is some kind of system for judging these situations based on an outside mediator when somebody else disagrees. And really, these systems have changed very little over the centuries. In the last couple centuries, uh, especially because of the printing press and the internet, they've had major developments because you can have what's called case law. So you can open up a book, you can do an internet search and look at all the other cases like this one. But in olden days, it was really relatively the same. You would go before a judge or you'd go before a group of elders from the community and you would state your case and they would make a judgment and that was the judgment. It should not be surprising then that the Bible uses this imagery of law and judgment and courtroom imagery. Um, it should not be surprising, too, that the Bible uses it a lot and that the Bible uses it about Jesus' cross. So let's kind of parse through this image. In the Old Testament, the laws of Israel come from God. In fact, in the story, the commandments are written by the very hand of God. Okay, so the law comes from God, and God's law is considered perfect. The Psalms speak of delighting in God's law because it shows how to live a great life. It's not, just about, uh, uh, it's not just about God saying things not to do. It's also about God setting you up to live a life that is valuable and with meaning because, after all, God made the world and knows what it takes to thrive in the world that he makes. God's laws are also not just for individuals, though. They're for society. It's for the world. People who had kept these rules together would be blessed. And because of these rules, people could live together. The main meaning of this word righteousness we hear is to be right, to be where it should be, like a right angle. Uh, and if you've ever built and you've ever worked on something that's not square, 
you find out how important that is because you're making every judgment because there's no right to sort of judge based on. In the Bible, the righteousness means the rightness, the way things should be. Justice is a similar word referring more broadly to the act of the world staying right with God. So justice is the act of moving people towards righteousness. God's justice would right wrongs and the people would act justly in the world and they would be responded with God's grace and favor. Over time, the Israelites made a legal system very complex, became this huge rule set. In fact, some said as many as 613 rules from the Old Testament. That seems like a lot of rules to try to follow. Um, But if you're trying to do your taxes right now, there's a lot of rules there too, right? Rules tend to get more and more complex. If you, there was a rule disobeyed or disputed in the community, what you would do is you'd go before a judge uh, or some kind of leadership of the community, and they would judge the case. In the time of Jesus, the highest course of, court of judging for the Jewish law was called the Sanhedrin. They would protect the law, but they were also meant to uh, protect the law of the Lord. They were meant to uphold the law. They were meant to take care of the nation because if the nation stayed within the laws, then God would show favor to them. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a day where God would someday enforce all these laws. The prophets of the Old Testament called for this day, and they called it the day of the Lord. Now, the one problem is that the prophets were pretty adamant that this was not something you necessarily wanted to look forward to. That when God came to judge, uh, he may judge somebody worse than you are, but what does that mean about your standing for God? Some of the, uh, some of the prophets write in exile, which means they, they know that they're already in another land. Some of the prophets write before exile actually happens. and so But, but they see this as... as Uh, absolutely going to happen, that we're going to be in trouble with God because of how we've treated people and because of how we've lived in this world. And so here are all these Israelites, they are bragging, yes, the day of the Lord when our enemies are going to get punished. And people like Amos write and say, woe to you who say, who welcome the day of the Lord, who look forward to it, because it is not going to be the day that you expect. Oh yeah, God is going to get our enemies. Yeah, but God is also going to judge you. And you may not be in such a good place when the God of the universe judges you. Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Israel might think because they've done the feast, because they've had the music, because they've had the sacrifices, they've done all the religious churchy stuff, right? So we must be okay with God. And Amos warns them, You're not as okay as maybe you think you are. God's law is, more about, is about more than checking boxes. It's about your heart. And Amos says, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says your behavior in this world matters. Okay, your beliefs isn't enough. Your religious practices isn't enough. Your behavior in this world matters. We are meant to pursue justice and righteousness in our world. And the Israelites at the time were not really caring for the poor. They were not really caring for outsiders in their community. And God said, all your worship isn't going to save you. All your worship isn't going to save you because your treatment of those people reflects something about your heart. 
Now notice that the day of the Lord is both corporate and personal. Again, we get this dual sense, right? You need to care for people and watch your heart, but we also need to care for people and watch our hearts. But is God just a very judgmental God? No. The understanding of the Bible is that God is a righteous God who is too holy to sit by and not do anything about this world. God must make things right, but God is also gracious in providing how. If you've ever been to court, a judge sits on uh, what's called a bench in our days. Normally, you have to sort of cross this barrier we call the bar to get up to where the actual court proceedings are going to hire are going to happen. And if you want to get past that bar and be able to speak, you have to pass a bar exam. That means you know enough stuff to be up there and a part of the proceedings. In olden days, the person who judged a case also sat on a judgment seat. It was called a bima. This was often in the main court of town, and uh, it was a special court or courtyard, sometimes in the house of a ruler. Uh, and some people would even sit this right in front of their house so that you had to come to them. And when they sat in the court, the court was in session when they sat on that bima and they judged your case. So in the day of the Lord, God was said to sit on the bima or the judgment seat and judge the world. The New Testament then takes this image and says that Jesus is sitting on the judgment seat. And now we have to answer to him. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, what are you being judged on? Not just your belief, not just your religious system. Paul says you're judged on what you've done in your body. What have you actually done in your behavior? This is really important. Because in the Old Testament, who sits on the judgment seat? God does. In the New Testament, who sits on the judgment seat? Jesus does. Okay, the, the New Testament is clearly making a case that Jesus is actually God judging the world. And it means that he's going to have to give a verdict and a sentence. He's going to have to say what is uh, the actual uh, conclusion of the case. He's going to have to make a judgment. And then he's going to have to make a sentence. Some kind of way in which this case is going to be fixed. Okay, whether that's a prison sentence, whether that is a payment that's due. You always have a verdict and a sentence. This is important for the day of the Lord. Because what, what it means is the day of the Lord has already started. Okay, when the Bible says God's going to sit on that throne is the day of the Lord, and then Jesus is sitting on the throne, the day of the Lord has begun. The Messiah is there, ready to give a verdict and a sentence. And I think Jesus gives the verdict and the sentence from the cross. What does Jesus say? It is finished. But what is finished? Well, his life is finished. His work on the cross is finished as he gives up his life. But I believe something bigger is going on here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, that's another legal term, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven given us all our trespasses. Notice, your trespasses, our trespasses. Still singular plural. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What is this saying? You and I were dead in our trespasses. We broke the laws. 
We haven't stayed up with what we should have done. But in Christ, you and I are made alive. You're forgiven. Your debt is canceled against all its legal demands. Where did it go, according to Paul? It was uh, canceled by it being nailed to the cross. The life of Jesus is finished, the work he came to do, but also in that moment, our guilt is finished. So when Jesus goes to the cross, it's the ultimate legal act of judgment, both a verdict and a sentence. The verdict, when Jesus is nailed to the cross, you and I are found guilty. We are first and foremost found guilty because it's our sin that put him there. And yet, we are found innocent because Christ has paid the sentence for us. The sentence of death has been paid. Isn't that amazing? We live in a culture that's filled with anxiety. We worry a ton, but we also live in a society with a lot of guilt. We feel guilty all the time. Or else we avoid guilt. We don't like guilt. But here's Jesus, who is loving, but, but also uh, takes on our sin. I mean, he takes on that guilt for us. So at the same moment that we feel guilty because Christ has done this for us, we can be free of that guilt because Christ has already paid for it. In fact, the Bible takes this one step further. This painting is Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. Uh, if you remember the story, the, the, father wished his, uh, the son wished his father dead, took all his money and, uh, that he was owed to him, and went to a foreign land and spent it all. And then he comes back to his father thinking, I'm just going to be a servant. I'll just work off my debt over time. I can't be a son. And yet, this father comes running to his son and holds him, hugs him. And if you see in the painting, the, the father uh, holding the son, the son only has one shoe on. He's very beat up. The father is loving on this son. And if you actually follow Rembrandt at all, the father is Rembrandt. That's a self-portrait. He paints himself as this father accepting someone else. But if you look at the two other characters in the painting, remember there, were, there was one brother but in the story, there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There are the scribes and the Pharisees that are sitting there. And they are not happy with the reconciliation that happens between the son and his father. See, to reconcile is to fix the relationship. And this is something that our legal system cannot do. Have you ever known two people that sued each other? Were they friends afterwards? Okay? You ever seen a real bitter divorce and then they became close afterwards? Okay? When, when we go through the legal system, it's about judgment. It's about trying to make something fair, rectify something that was wrong. But what we don't do in our legal system is reconcile. Okay? It almost never happens. There's no way for the court to say, okay, here's what you owe this person. Now hug it out and be friends again. Okay? My mom used to try that. But the legal system can't do that. There's no reconciliation. There's no rebuilding of relationship. There is just trying to make what was wronged right again. But the Bible goes that extra step. The Bible says that Jesus actually makes reconciliation. So even though we transgressed against God, we have the love and favor of God. All this says 2 Corinthians 5 says, All this comes from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message. That is who we are as a church. We are a people of reconciliation. We are ministers. We are agents of reconciliation. And so we look at this world that is broken. We look at this world where a legal system can't put people back together. And we say that that's our space to fix relationships, to seek righteousness and justice isn't just to get the legal system involved. It's to fight for reconciliation, for really putting things back together. But we do not see righteousness alone or without hope. We believe that Jesus will return someday to finish the justice, that all things will be made right, that we will someday have the conclusion of the day of, Lord, of the Lord coming um, that, that Jesus started 2,000 years ago, that there will be a coming judgment where Matthew tells us that there will be a, a sorting of sheep and goats. Theologian Marcus Bart calls this the great and final litigation. It's the final court case. God will judge, and if we are smart, we will take that with a little bit of pause, right? Because our hearts are going to be judged. And uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter. Right? Not everybody who did all this great religious stuff is going to be in on this day. And so we better be careful and watch our hearts. But I hope you understand that the judgment is a little bit different then. Because on that day, we're going to be found guilty of a lot of things. And then we're going to be pronounced innocent because of the sacrifice that Jesus did for us. And so what is this new judgment? The new judgment, the new verdict and sentence for us will be, what did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you accept this gift? Did you live your life to please his righteousness or to get what you wanted out of it? The judgment is now not the law. The judgment is now what do you do with Christ? Perhaps it seems I'm starting to repeat myself if you've been through this series. But in all these images, the atonement, redemption, ransom, the blood sacrifice, and now the courtroom, all these images has this sense that we owe something that Jesus pays, right? has this sense that we owe, that we could never pay, and Jesus graciously pays for us. And it's a gift, a gift that is paid very costly with the life of Christ. Now, I hope this legal imagery is helpful for you. It's rich and it's complicated, but I think it can help us appreciate even more what Christ does for you. On the cross, you and I were declared both guilty and innocent. We were given a sentence of death, and that sentence was carried off out by Christ. And so now we can live guilt-free, living for justice and righteousness in this world. May we all then live our lives as ministers of reconciliation for this world. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful for your gift of Jesus Christ. We are thankful for all that he means to us. Lord, show us the ways in which we are still guilty, the ways in which we are still under the law, the ways in which we have not yet lowered ourselves, kneeled before your lordship. We do thank you for Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Thank you that he took on our guilt and gave us his innocence. 
pray that as Easter approaches, you would make us mindful of the great gift of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. May we live for justice and righteousness. May we be workers of reconciliation in this world. And may we start in the most difficult place of all, in our own heart and in our own relationships. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.